Hello, I'm Yolanda Brown and welcome to LPO Offstage. This is the podcast that gets behind the scenes of the orchestral life with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Today we're finding out what it's like to write for an orchestra like the LPO, what's the process behind commissioning a new work and different musical collaborations, what works and what doesn't. Well, we're joined by the LPO's composer-in-residence, Brett Dean, and double bass player, Sebastian Pennar. Welcome, Brett, and lovely to have you back on the podcast, Seb. Hi, Yolanda. It's great uh, to be hello here. Hello again. <laughs> now, Brett, I'll start with you. What does your role as composer-in-residence at the LPO involve? Okay, so composer-in-residence with the LPO is a very particular one, and one that I'm particularly fond of. And I've done residencies with orchestras many times before. But one of the the great hallmarks of this residency is the curating and mentoring of five young composers who are part of the Young Composers program. And this is a program that runs through the entire season. And so we've actually just met a couple of weeks ago for the first time. The audition process took place prior to the summer. And we then meet up every couple of months then from now until the presentation of five brand new pieces at the end of the season in June or early July. And similarly, there's a great sense of hands-on-ness about my role with the LPO. So I'll be conducting that program, but I'll also be conducting a program that's a combined ensemble of foil future firsts players and LPO players, and that's in January. And then similar to other composer and residence initiatives with other orchestras, there's quite a deal of my music being presented. But it's, yeah, it's a very special one also because it's a three-year residency. And Seb, what excites you about all this new music coming through? And I guess on the flip side of that, what are some of the challenges? The accusation is sort of often levelled at that orchestras are sort of a museum of music or could turn into that if you just keep churning out Chike 5 and Beethoven 5. And this obviously, that's an important part of what we do, but it's good to keep adding to the repertoire and making new art and Mm. um, trying to push boundaries a bit. Obviously, there are challenges, primarily it being that nobody's ever done this music before if it's hot off the press. And what is that feeling for you? I mean, the amount of repertoire that you've played over the years. um, What is it like for you to open up a new piece of work that you've never seen before? Is there excitement? Is there trepidation? What what, what goes through your mind at the time? Definitely both those things. Yes, but I mean, sometimes, would it be fair to say, Brett, that composers sometimes, not yourself, but uh, (laughs) some composers uh, leave it quite last minute uh, to present the music to the musicians? Sure, Um, yeah. I mean, that's one of the the challenges of the job and one of the things I think that young composers have to get their heads round, that, you know, there are deadlines and you don't want to rely too much on that wonderful Douglas Adams uh, saying, oh, I love deadlines. I love that whooshing noise they make as they rush past. Um, <laughs> but, but actually but actually, sticking to a deadline is one of the biggest challenges, particularly then for, for younger composers. 
And I mean, then speaking as an orchestral musician myself, because I, I played in an orchestra in Germany for 15 years, and when you're in the machine, of course, it's one thing to sort of go in knowing, oh, it's Brahms 2 today, that's fine, I've, you know, I've played that many times, and it's like a home game, you know, you kind of know yeah. what you're, you're dealing with, whereas, you know, a new piece could be any number of things. But the, the difficult thing then for a composer, I still find, is the first run-through of a piece can be very confusing as a composer because obviously an orchestra is dealing with all this stuff for the first time and you don't really know what you're hearing is then an expression of mistakes that you yourself might have made or misjudgments or whether you've just got to let the orchestra get to know it first and and you know you've you've got to get got to get your head around that as well as a as a young composer not to be horrified by the sort of first reading and, and thinking it's all going to be a total disaster. Oh, my um, God. The, the, yeah. the times I've thought, oh, I might as well give up. That was just <laughs> such crap. And, and then, you yeah. know, give it a few days. I mean, the, one of the first big orchestral pieces that I wrote for the Melbourne Symphony. And, you know, it was, it was very daunting. And really, you know, it was a difficult piece. I mean, my pieces do tend to be on the difficult side, not necessarily sight readable. And, you know, you do have you to give, say, it, give it time. Again. <laughs> <laughs> give it yeah. for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, you, you've got to sort of factor that in. That's really mm. important. Well, I want to delve into the process a little bit. You've, you've kind of let us know that composer feeling of the first run through. And I want to get back to that. But take some steps earlier. How do you start the process of writing for an orchestra? In essence, the things you then need to nut out when you're asked to write a piece is what size orchestra it is, what dimensions of piece. I mean, too often in the world of new music, it's it's sort of some short, harmless piece of new music at the opening of a concert so that we don't put off too many potential <laughs> ticket buyers. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it is sort of getting your head around what, okay, so what have, what have I got to play with? And so it is it more about the practicalities of yeah. the music you're about to make rather than the creative vision of I heard this melody in the middle of the night and this is where it's going? Exactly. I think they're the things you, you take back to your music room or, or studio. But the, the first conversations with, you know, a, an orchestra or an entrepreneur who's wanting to commission you is more you know, the practicalities of it. So it can be up to, let's say, 15 minutes long. You've got an orchestra of, say, double or even perhaps triple woodwinds or whatever. Mm. Then there may be a bit of, you know, back and forth, argy-bargy as to how many percussionists you might be able to use. And, you know, it was also ever thus. I mean, you know, you go back through letters and documents of commissioning processes in the past and operas particularly, you know, the, the sort of correspondence between impresarios and composers is full of this sort of thing. You know, yes. it, it's it's nothing new, but it's, it is still something you, you have to kind of nut out. And Brett, as a mentor, I know we're, we're delving into the young composers territory here, but um, as a mentor, what do you say to these young composers before they enter into the room with the musicians? Because I guess at some point, there's still an element of 
you have the final say, you know, but they're hearing advice from musicians that have been playing for maybe years before they were even born. Um, so, yeah, you know, how do you get them to either hold their ground or take advice, but take it or leave it kind of thing? You have to give some advice as to how to go about approaching players, how to deal with situations when maybe a player in an orchestra and I, you know, I've had such experiences in situations elsewhere where players might be very adamant and quite gruff in their, you know, there are some orchestral musicians who will see perhaps also both young conductors and young composers as kind of fair game. Mm. And um, <laughs> sport. Let's let's lay into <laughs> this. Yeah. This yeah. Guy. And, yeah. and I, I you know, I know I know that from being inside an orchestra as a as a string player myself, that, you know, that there are people that, that have a very sort of hard, fast Set, set ideas. Set of, ideas, also set ideas yeah. of what constitutes music. And I must say, I got rather sick of hearing from certain colleagues in orchestras that, that sort of, I didn't study this instrument for, you know, 20 years in order to go, yes. you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Mm. And, and so, you know, you do have to prepare young composers in particular for how, how do you respond to that? The Young Composers Program has been going... I'm not sure exactly how many years, but quite a few years now. It's a training session for an orchestra too. It, it gives them a, a way in, you know, so you do have to kind of have some preparation on both sides and some give on both sides. It must be quite a daunting and terrifying experience putting something in front of, you know, nearly 100 people sometimes and as a young composer sort of open yourself up to feedback slash attack, really. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I've, I've done work with other orchestras, not the LPO, where we've had composer workshops and a cellist just sort of stood up and really laid into one of these young composers just saying, mm. this is totally impossible and not practical and just really sort of went off on one and it was, I felt very sorry for the yeah, composer. Um, they can be daunting and, and profound and damaging sort of experiences. Yeah, yeah. Knowing that that experience is going to happen, you're going to have to put the, the dots in front of the orchestra at some point. How do you go about selecting a creative sound space or knowing what you want to say? Are you taking into consideration the orchestra and the players that you have there? Or can you be free as a composer just to say, this is what I want to say with this piece of music? I will put it in front of the orchestra as it is. How do you go about choosing the colours, Brett? Wow. Well, there, Yolanda, you, you hit on, the, you know, one of the great <laughs> challenges of writing for an orchestra in a professional context because the, the industry standard nowadays for an orchestral concert, let's say, is um, usually kind of two days of rehearsal, a general rehearsal and a concert or a series of concerts, if you're lucky. And so... You know, the, the sort of legends of hearing about how many rehearsals some of these great works of orchestral modernism in the 20th century might have received and, the, the you know, how many rehearsals there were before the Rite of Spring was first performed and that, that sort of thing. Hmm. You know, you can get lost as a young musician in, in the stuff of legend and, and actually forget to look at what the reality is. It's 
incredibly interesting then and critical to see what else is on a program. And, you know, if it's sort of fairly standard, then you may be quite lucky with rehearsal time. But if there's another complicated or less familiar work on the program, you, you can be in, in trouble. So how do you, as a young composer or even as a more experienced composer, weigh up how far can I go before we're not going to get there in time? Mm. So it's about finding your sound and reconciling that with, to some extent, what is manageable in a certain time frame. I mean, that's why a lot of younger composers and, and especially more avant-garde composers, young, middle-aged, whatever, will perhaps avoid orchestral music because they don't feel that they can really express what they want to express within those constraints. And so they'll prefer to work with specialised ensembles, chamber groups, whatever, that put in those hours and, and also play a lot more new music to start with. Isn't that interesting that the restrictions or the whatever you have in front of you forms part of the ingredient of that piece, really? And I guess even nowadays, playing the, the repertoire that we know and love, they might have been created with those restrictions in place and now we actually try to recreate them, <laughs> which is almost, really interesting. Yeah, almost yeah. certainly they were with some, some restrictions in place, yeah. Yes. And Seb, I wonder how much technology now comes into play, especially we've been speaking about young composers who now have access to computers that can play how many instruments at the same time in any octave that they choose and please. <laughs> how much have you come up against the idea that the composer has either heard it on the computer or heard it somewhere and then it gets to you, the double basis, and you say, this actually isn't physically possible. Has that ever happened to you and how do you navigate that? Well, not so much in the LPO, but um, again, in sort of composer workshops that I've done in the past, people will present something and you just have to say, that's not, it's not realistically possible for us. Usually it's something really, really fast or... Or jumping between arco and pizzicato in sort of you know bah, 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 sort of um, in a super short space of time. Obviously, you can, and, and people in not so contemporary music have have done that. Yeah, I don't know whether it's because whether that's because of whether you can blame that on technology or whether that's just a a bad idea. <laughs> that, <laughs> just an oversight they, they, on that their they, part <laughs> that, they, that they've had. Um, but um, yeah, but usually, even if it's very difficult, you. you you try your best and it might not always come off in a live performance, but you give them the benefit of the doubt that, you know, they, there must be a reason that they want this. Do you, do you ever write anything, Brett, where you, you know this is very difficult and, and you want it to sound difficult? That's, that's a, yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, well, in orchestral writing, I tend to shy away from stuff that I know is just going to be absolutely impossible to play but it's about finding that that happy spot where you write something that you know is technically challenging and yet you know at the same time that it is possible because I find then that an orchestral player, given that challenge, the best orchestral players will want to rise to that challenge. You know, you kind of lay it down in front of them and they think, you know, I, I can get there. 
even in the two days we've got before the concert. <laughs> um, if it's just page after page of black of just way too many notes and so on, at some point the will of the player, you know, it's diminishing returns. If you give them some challenges but they are manageable. The thing is you also get the best possible energy out of the players. Mm. You know, you get this sense of... And, and I mean, one of, the, one of the examples, maybe not... So, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic example because he was one of the great composers of the 20th century that, that is playing Elektra of Richard Strauss when I was in, in the orchestra in Germany in, in Berlin. And, I mean, some unbelievably virtuosic stuff that's in the string parts. I mean, they're, they're sort of, you know, if there were solo parts and you had to play them as a solo, you'd really have to work at them. But the thing is, he also was just so so well-versed in how far he could push things. And, I mean, he never pushed things further than Electra, really. I mean, it's just the the most sort of expressionistic and, and extreme he got in his in his own output. The fascinating thing was that a few days into rehearsals for it, even even it was an, even a huge challenge for for the Berlin Philharmonic. But you got to this point where everyone thought, "Oh, yeah, you know, we can do this." You know, and f what what at first, even with such a great orchestra, at the first rehearsal sounded shambolic. But mm. you know, you get to this point where you think, "Oh, yeah." Coming back to what you were saying earlier about. You know, nowadays composers have all this technology at their at their fingertips, and certainly it does give you a chance to get some oral impression of what a piece might sound like. But the danger there is, of course, that like you know Conlon and Caro's player piano, a computer hmm. can sort of cope with anything, and and you you sort of get to the reality of players with only two hands and um, <laughs> and embouchures and, and technical issues to deal with. And then you realise that uh, what the computer was telling you is a very different thing when it comes to the reality, the wonderful reality of human beings playing it. And do you use the computer yourself, Brett, when you're, when you're writing music? Do you use it just for a point of reference or is it in your head? How does it work? So I do use a computer for, for notational purposes, yes. Inevitably, a piece, when I start it from, you know, a blank page, I'll be sitting at the piano. Uh, I'm not a pianist of any note, but I couldn't really work without a piano. I will use the viola too, not only for the benefit of, of string parts, but just to get a feel for certain lines and shapes even if it's, you know, vocal writing, but it's just, it's my instrument. So it sort of gives me that added way of working my way into the music. When I feel I have gathered enough information, material, sketches, whatever, on paper, then I'll start transferring those to the computer. And I must say, the first little while that I was using a computer notation program, I felt that it was running the show, you know, in that hmm. it's very easy to then get in a kind of copy-paste sort of mentality because it's easy. I think, you know, you also have to learn to play it like an instrument and be in charge of it and know not only... Who's you know, the, the boss? Who's the boss? You know, not <laughs> only in terms of shortcuts and so on, but, but really is it still my creative process that's 
getting expressed here or the computers. Interesting what you said there, Brett, about um, sort of just finding that sweet spot, stretching the player just enough to find something magical. Listening to that, Seb, as a player, and sometimes I guess you've had a piece of work in front of you, you think, why on earth did they go there? You know, <laughs> hearing Brett speak so passionately like that, did it bring anything into focus for you and make you think of any works um, that you've played in the past? The, oh, I see. Yeah, I see where they were trying to get to there. Often when you hear the piece for the first time or you play the piece for the first time and you're thinking, oh, this is really difficult and it sounds horrible. Uh, <laughs> why, why am I not bothered? holding any why, punches why, here? <laughs> why, 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 no, 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 this isn't about Brett's music. No, just I know, generally, I know. you know. Um, but obviously, well, for example, not, not super contemporary music, but we did this Michael Tippett opera recently and the first rehearsal it's a really difficult piece and it was a mess and fortunately a few days in to the project and by the show not only is it sounding much much better but i sort of come round to the piece and go oh that's what's happening here and mm. oh maybe it's not all horrible <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, when we did uh opera at glyndebourne uh, hamlet Again, at the start of that process, it was quite daunting. It was, it was sort of quite long opera, was it? Yeah, it is quite you know, long. Yeah. long. Mm. yeah, and um, a lot of music to prepare. And again, it sort of it seems insurmountable when you when you start it, and it's quite stressful. And then, and even within we did, uh, I can't remember how many shows we did. Maybe eight. Mm. There are things that you're still trying to improve on within you know from show one to two and two to three you're sort of going oh I must get that difficult bit right this time and yeah and by the end of the rehearsal process and even by the end of the run of operas you've got a much better idea of what the piece is about and you can go oh, yeah this is actually good <laughs> <laughs> this works for me but yeah. how long how long does the process take I know that's like asking how long is a piece of string but mm. in general how long would for a modern composition would it take from that commission to sort of being ready for performance? I write relatively quickly, probably, compared to some of my colleagues. But um, so I could probably write a, you know, 10-minute orchestral piece in a month or two. Wow. Whereas the, you know, the opera took, well, it happened over a period of four years. I mean, it wasn't the only thing I was writing in that time, but, I mean, yes. that was a hell of a lot of work. And can you tell us about any particular compositional challenges you may have encountered and how did you overcome them? Well, I mean, one thing that, again, coming back to the, the Young Composer um, project for this year, we have... Uh, assigned them to write a piece for solo instrument and an orchestra. So that is a very particular challenge. In my own case, I've written concertos for instruments I know well, including mm. string instruments, of course, but also for instruments that I'm not familiar with at all, or at least certainly have never played. One of the biggest challenges was writing a, a trumpet concerto for Hawkeye Hardenberger and getting my head around, you know, what a trumpet can, can do, do nowadays <laughs> and even, you know, down to what sort of different mutes it can use and just getting one's head around it. But, I, I mean, I find all of those challenges really great because they give you new experiences and new information and new knowledge. 
And Seb, I know that you're going to be collaborating with Brett quite closely. You've got a, a LPO concert in December. Can you tell me about that project and have you started working on it yet? Yeah, so we, we've done it already and it was very brief, really. But me, me and me, Brett and our principal percussionist, Andy, basically making, a, would it be fair to say funny noises? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah, Brett presented a few ideas, including for me uh, using a, a rubber ball on a stick and uh, rubbing it along the back of the and the front of the bass to sort of create this slightly howling noise, sort of quite ethereal and haunting. So that was one of the things. And then I don't really know what he's going to do with them, but um, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll all find out in December. Um, Brett, what are you going to do with them? And what, what is the piece? The... <laughs> What's yeah. the name of the piece? So, well, I mean, this is a very unusual project in that the piece is called Notorno Inquieto, Unsettled or Nervous Nocturne. And that piece already exists as a kind of 10-minute orchestral piece or 8-minute orchestral piece and features in, in this programme with Vladimir Yurovsky in December. But I was keen to add a kind of prelude to it. And this prelude will feature some live musicians from from the LPO, the bass section, for example, and the percussion section. But everything else will be sort of pre-recorded and and manipulated and and triggered by a keyboard player, presumably, or or somebody sitting on a laptop or sitting at a laptop, maybe not on a laptop. (laughs) And so what I then did this, this particular day a couple of weeks ago with Andy and Seb and Miles Eastwood, recording engineer, was just very close miking of some very particular sounds that end up being a little bit like the building blocks of of a piece. So while Seb said, yeah, we did it the other day, I mean, that's only one part of the story because I'm, (laughs) I'm still sort of putting the piece together. First of all, as a kind of a sound collage sound file, And then working out from those sounds that, you know, using this material that we recorded, how much of that is going to be those pre-recorded sounds? How much of it will be actually played live by the bass players and the percussionists? And, I mean, also primarily, what's it there for? So um, it's working as a kind of a, a... big sort of upbeat into this piece that already exists. It it, mm. it starts very, very low down in the depths. We actually we also recorded this incredible Tycho drum that, that happened to be there. It's in storage, apparently, in Henry Wood Hall. So we, we got Andy to play some very delicate, subtle boom sort of sounds on the Tycho drum and taking that down then another octave uh, in, a, in a recording studio, get this unbelievable sort of, yeah, this this very subterranean, quite disturbing, but also beautiful sort of sound. I'm still sort of halfway through that process of turning these recorded sounds into a working live electroacoustic very piece. Cool. And then some of the sounds will actually inhabit the world of the already existing, otherwise only purely orchestral piece. And when they finally get the music in front of the orchestra, 
how much do you have to communicate with the conductor to make sure that they really are breathing life into what you've written? They are the conduit. It's that harnessing of energy, particularly in those crucial early rehearsals where, you know, because it's such difficult music and it's such a big book of music that you've got to get through, you've got to keep people buoyant and show that you can guide them through this. And I mean, they're both absolute masters at that. With Vlad, we've done quite a lot together. And I mean, such a fascinating and analytical mind who was able in in working on Hamlet to sort of draw things to my attention that I wasn't even so aware of in the score. I mean, you know, that that he he brings his own sort of almost forensic intelligence to a score like that and <laughs> and had some incredibly astute and insightful and you know kind of fascinating things to say about it to ask and that has over the years taught me so much as well do you think he knew in some ways the piece perhaps better than you did yourself in a sort of way certainly at some point in any event, he does because he's the one that's been conducting it. You know, he yes. did those eight performances. I couldn't have done that. And he, he knows the piece in a way that, as just the composer, you, you don't get to know where the particular energy fields lie that you need as a conductor to make the piece work. Yeah, I, I think there's very much a sense of of making it yours when you're a conductor in a way that the composer can't even get near. And- and then in the end, the composer has to let go, do you think, at, at yeah, the end of the day? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mentioned the trumpet concerto I wrote for Hawkeye. I mean, obviously he knows the piece in a way much better than I do. He, he knows absolutely every nuance of the solo part in a way that I've never needed to know, you know. And so, Seb, how are you feeling about playing a new concerto piece by one of the LPO's young composers next summer? Uh, nervous would really? be. <laughs> Why is but, that? Uh, well, yeah, I, I've, I have had a piece written for me once, played a piece in my final recital that was written for me for that purpose. And uh, as I was alluding to earlier that some composers leave at the last minute, this composer, who shall remain nameless, <laughs> uh, gave me his music with about two days before the recital oh, to go. No. Well, it was, so it was for double bass and piano. And oh, uh, not only was the... <laughs> the double bass part quite difficult, but the piano part was fiendish. And uh, I presented it to my sort of official college accompanist. And uh, they said, I'm not playing this piece. Um, so so we, had to find another, we had to find another pianist who was willing to learn this insane piece in, uh, in two days. Um, <laughs> How did it go? It was quite go? stressful. Uh, um, it was remarkably okay. It was a, a spectacle. I think that's fair to say. But um, anyway, so hopefully that won't be a problem this time uh, with Alex, um, who's composing my piece. I've met him and I've listened to some of his music, which I like. He hasn't really given much away as to what his plans for me are so wow. far. But um, I'm very excited anyway and honoured to be <laughs> asked to do it. Have you got any quick final words for upcoming or budding composers, uh, top tips for them, I guess, anywhere during the process that they should really sort of keep an eye on? Well, I've always felt that it's just listening and above all listening to live performance, which, you know, is thankfully now coming back, that always taught me the most, that there's something about being in a room and feeling how a particularly a new piece 
vibrates and resonates that you can't necessarily get off Spotify. And mm. that seeing exactly also how those energy fields of players performing music can inform and help shape and influence that piece, I think is always something that, because music is so accessible online and so on, I think it's easy to forget that actually the live experience is a completely different one and, and for me, ultimately, also more um, more true. Well, Brett and Seb, it has been so lovely to speak to you here on LPO Offstage and thank you for sharing so wonderfully. I believe, Brett, that you're very gracious and very collaborative and I guess any composer that can be allowed to just live the music after it's been written is in a really happy place. So it's great to meet you. Thank you. A pleasure to speak with Yolanda and Seb. Great to catch up. Yeah, nice <laughs> to see you again. See you in December. See you in December, yes. yeah. <laughs> Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Brett Dean and Seb Penner for their insights into what it's like to write for the orchestra and what it's like to be written for. Please get in touch using the hashtag OffstagePod and thank you for listening. Do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage where we'll be talking about tour logistics, mishaps and the dream truck. <laughs> <laughs>